0: have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened.
1: Before we start this episode, I want to tell you about an amazing true crime podcast. Jamie Snow is serving life in prison for a crime he says he didn't commit. Now, listen as he tells the story from Stateville Prison in Crest Hill, Illinois, in the Snow Files. Season one focused on the trial and presented new witness evidence and taped interviews never before revealed while Season 2 covered forensics. In September, a judge ruled Jamie should be given nearly 8,000 documents that were withheld from him and his attorneys. This is the first time he has received relief in 22 years. The final season of The Snow Files, which is now available, wraps it up with a deep dive into the alternative suspects and other wrongful convictions in McLean County that were presided over by the same state's attorney. Together with co-hosts Bruce Fisher, Tammy Alexander, Leslie Pires, and Ray Wilson, Listen to Jamie tell a story about his wrongful conviction guaranteed to make you laugh, cry, and shock you to the core. not only tells you his story, but he interacts with listeners and answers questions. New episodes of The Snow Files are released every other week, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Or download Jamie's case files and listen directly at snowfiles.net. My name is Charlie Moss, and I've been a freelance journalist and writer for more than ten years. I've written for The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate, and other publications. I also used to work for an online camping magazine called The Dirt. It was there that I wrote about a haunted campground just outside of Stanton, Virginia. The more I dug into the story, the more I realized that this wasn't just a simple Halloween ghost tale. It was something much deeper, much more profound than I ever imagined. And I've spent the last three years finding out as much as I can about what happened at Braley Pond. This is Episode 3, The Energy Around Us. Um, I was coming out of my parents' bedroom,
0: and I was walking into a living room. And I do not remember where we went um, before this, but uh, it was at night. And I don't remember why I walked in the living room and when I was walking back towards our kitchen there was a man tall man standing leaning against our threshold staring at me and it 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 shocked me and i said hey, dude, who are you and i i, remember, I never remember i'll never forget the name scott um and in the brief few seconds that we interacted with each other i will never remember the i'll never forget the um it was a Toboggan that he was wearing, um, like a large trench coat. It almost seemed like he was dressed like he was homeless. Um, and the floor around him was wet. It was like he he literally stepped out of a pool um, and just dripping wet all over the the carpet. And he was covered in blood. And he had several. I could I could not figure out if they were stab wounds or bullet holes. And I was too young to really understand what was going on. But um, the older I got and the more I talked to my own mother, uh, I figured out that they were, and the more I thought about it, they were stab wounds. Um, he had three or four of them in his, uh, he had two in his chest, two in his gut. Um, And after saying Scott, uh, I was shocked.
1: And in the blink of an eye, he was gone. That was Shay Willis's son, Zach, recounting seeing what he believes was the ghost of Christopher Kennedy a few weeks after Shay's paranormal experience at Braley Pond. However, this wasn't the only experience Shay and her family had after her visit to Braley Pond with Chris Pugh.
2: So, in the months following um, that encounter that we had, which was October 25th, 2003, um, things just were weird um mm-hmm. I felt ill i don't know how else to explain it i i there was nothing physically wrong with me um but I still felt ill like I had some sort of like um long term lingering illness or something i I don't know exactly how to explain it. I did not feel well at all um i was and I am not a um I'm not a, a depressive person by nature. I am extremely optimistic and I'm I'm always happy. Even when I'm not happy, I'm happy. I was drained, I couldn't think straight, my body was tired.
1: Shay also started to have nightmares, which she says is something that rarely happened to her before Bailey Pond.
2: Um I had the I had these awful dreams and I'm I'm I mean every once in a while, you know, I would have a bad dream, once or twice a year maybe, but I mean these were frequent and they always centered around something in the water. There was um there was one in particular that was in November or December of 2003 that where I was on a dock in an unfamiliar place and and it looked it was very ocean like. Um and I knew there was something in the water and I could not I knew it was coming up to the dock and it was this this combination almost like when I was standing on the dam listening to the splashes in the water and knew I should leave, but was unable to. It was the same kind of feeling. It was this dread fascination combination. And I'm on this dock and I'm looking in the water and I don't want to be there. I don't want to be looking in the water because I don't want to see what's there, but I can't help myself. And this thing, it wasn't real large. It was probably the size of, um, I don't know, maybe a, a small alligator but it didn't look anything like an alligator. It rises up out of the water. Its head comes up out of the water and it's this slimy grey looking skin with this massive um red protruding eyeball. I mean, not like um not like something in a horror movie. I mean it looked real. It looked like it that's how its eye was formed. Um, and this thing is looking at me, you know, and I scramble off the dock and I wake up. And so I, I kept having these dreams that surrounded, that that were, that had to do with water and things coming up out of the water.
1: Almost two months later, Shay went back to Brailey Pond.
2: I couldn't help it. I wanted to go back to Brailey. It was, again, it was that dreaded fascination. It was this pull. What happened, though, that was so strange was that once I got into the parking area, that's all I remember. I don't know how much time passed. And um, when I woke up for lack of a better term, I found myself in the woman's, the women's bathroom, um, looking down into the toilet. And these are not normal toilets. There's no running water, no electricity there. So these are just it's a, it's a toilet structure, but it's just a, a you know an excavated um, box underneath. And so it wasn't like I was looking down into the water. I was literally like my face down at the level of the toilet seat looking down into this hole when I woke up, which was very unsettling. And it it made me feel really weird because um, normally I'm very much in control of my facilities. And that was like the first time I could recall that I lost time.
1: Panicked, Shay immediately got in her car and left. From there, things only got worse.
2: After that... After that, still in December, um, there was this it was late December then. I noticed that over my side of the bed these scratches had started appearing in the drywall. I mean these things are deep enough that they're down into the drywall and there was a wallpaper border over that ran around the room that went, you know, it was I don't know, maybe um it was maybe six or eight inches above the top of the the, the sleigh bed, so it was up above the top of the head of the bed. And these things got bad enough that it actually slit the
1: wallpaper. By the way, Shay sent me photos of these scratch marks, and you can see them on the podcast website. Around Christmas time of 2003, Shay, her family, Chris Pugh, and some other friends went to Cape Charles, Virginia. It's on a small peninsula just west of the Chesapeake Bay, about four hours from Stanton. It's a place she and her family had gone for as long as she could remember. She recalls to me something she saw while she was there that at first seemed like no big deal.
2: In the water, um, in the breakers, actually, at Cape Charles, there was this enormous flock of Canadian geese. And I'd never seen Canadian geese at Cape Charles before, especially not in December when it, you know, it was very cold. And Chris, who, of course, is very medieval-oriented, um, very Renaissance and... and. Um, and is attuned to historical information associated with the, uh, the cycles of nature and everything. And so he says to me, that's so interesting that they're all there, and they're in the breakers. They're not, like, flying over. They're, they're bobbing around in this, this surf, and it was hundreds of them. And he says, you know, it's really interesting that they're there because you know what Canadian geese signify. And I didn't. I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, they're guardians. He said, these are the soldiers. They're the guardians. And I was like, well, what what does that mean? And he goes, well, look at what you've been going through. You know, he said, I'm not saying that it's um, uh, something that you need to blow out of proportion, but it's something you should stick in the back of your mind.
1: Over the next couple of months, Shay continued to not feel like herself. At this point, her job, working for a general contractor, had gotten pretty demanding, and she was driving an hour back and forth to Charlottesville every day. One day, to help lift her spirits, she stopped by Beaver Dam, a place just like Braley Pond, where her dad would take her as a kid. It's a place where she found solace.
2: So I'm coming home from Charlottesville one day, and I'm drawn to pull into there. I hadn't been there in years and years and years and years. I pulled down into the parking lot, and the waters froze over which i didn't expect to see um because this, this is a reservoir that's a very large body of water and i i just got the cold chills because i'm looking in the ice are these circular things that have these tentacles coming out from them and i've got pictures of this too again i'm sitting here looking at them and immediately i identified these breaks in the ice with that, this thing that had climbed up on my back and made itself at home there way back in October. It's a, the, what I was seeing with my eyes was what my tactical senses felt when this thing landed on my back.
1: If it wasn't clear, Shay is now describing seeing what she can only assume is many of the same type of large tentacled worm-like creatures that attached itself to her back at Barely Pond in October of the previous year. Her hitchhiker, as she calls it, except this time, there were a lot of them.
2: I'm looking at these things, going, "Gosh, this looks exactly like what I imagined," um, you know, my hitchhiker looked like. And as I'm looking, they're all over the place. And I, I mean, I'm familiar with water. I, I've never seen ice do this before, and I'm sure it, it probably was a natural phenomenon, but it was still very, very strange at the same time. So as I'm standing there <laughs> looking at these things, getting the willy nillys about them, right in front of me up walks this Canadian goose. And I remembered what Chris had said. The geese are the soldiers. They're the protectors. Pay attention when you see one. So I'm standing here looking at these things in the ice that look exactly like what I imagined my hitchhiker looked like and up walks right in front of me, right over top of them, steps on them, this Canadian goose.
1: A few weeks later, on the first day of March in 2004, Shay was driving home late one night from Charlottesville, and something else happened.
2: It was dark uh, when I was on my way home, and I was driving a white Ford Taurus, which was a company car, and I was coming up Route 250, um, and I I was halfway in between, about halfway in between, where you would turn to go to Beaver Dam and the bottom of Afton Mountain. I had the radio on, and I'm driving along, not thinking too much about anything, and all of a sudden, something hits my car, and it's pitch black outside. Something, I mean, literally racked my car, and my radio went off. It just went off. So, I slam the brakes on, pull off, turn around, and go back. What I find is this Canadian goose laying the side of the road. It literally is gutted. Its legs are cut off. Um, It it literally is eviscerated. And yet when I touched it 45 seconds after it hit my car, it was ice cold, and there was no blood anywhere. Not on my car, not on the goose, not on the side of the road. So that was, um, again, really, really unsettling. Um, It was very odd that after, you know, Chris, Kept telling me pay attention to when you see a goose, and I stopped off at Beaver Dam, and I'm looking at these creepy things in the in the ice embedded in the ice, and this goose walks right up in front of me, <laughs> and then, you know, a week or two later, I felt like it had this this one I felt like it had been gutted and liter- literally thrown at my car. I don't think it flew into my car. I think it had been thrown at my car, and so that was kind of um, that was a little disturbing. If the goose had been warm, or if there had been blood all over my car, or, you know, if it had been soft and pliable and bleeding all over the road, it wouldn't have been as disturbing. But the thing was ice cold. I really think it was dead before it ever hit my car.
1: Shay continued to have nightmares and not feel well over the next few weeks. Whatever she was experiencing was like nothing she had ever encountered before.
2: I understood that there was something going on that I didn't quite understand, but at the same time, I was getting real tired of it, and so I finally just decided I'm done with this you know i'm i'm I was really curious about what this thing was and why I kept seeing evidence of it everywhere, and why I kept seeing these signs and these signals and why my body felt so bad and everything
1: That's when Shay decided to confront this entity, this being or whatever you want to call it
2: and so um, I got I got mad and I said, "Look, I'm done with you. I don't know what the hell you are, but um, you need to go away. And I'm you're 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 not welcome. You never have been welcome. And I want you gone. And I want you gone
1: She didn't feel any difference immediately. After a few days, though, she experienced another physical change, one that I have to warn you is pretty graphic.
2: But I did do some energy work around my house. And I did, like, some detrimental energy lines that were in place. I had to balance those out, made things to where it it was going to be harder for this darker energy to hang around, for lack of a better word. And I don't mean to get too graphic, but um, it wasn't a few days after that that I had my period. And it was gruesome. I don't know how else to explain it. It was absolutely positively gruesome. And there was, again, bear with me for the graphics, but there was this massive clotted ball that literally had these tentacle-like pieces of tissue on it that fell out of me. And after that, I didn't have any more problems with it. Hmm, haven't
1: had any problems with it since. So was Shay saying that whatever attached itself to her at Braley Pond had somehow planted something inside her? And if so, what? She doesn't have an answer for that, though she has some theories. But it might make more sense in helping us figure out what all this means by learning more about Shay's abilities. As I talked about in episode one, Shay is an energy worker, which means she's able to read not just other people's energy, but the energy all around her whether it's from animals, places, or inanimate objects. In one of our conversations, I liken her abilities to the Force in Star Wars. Can I compare it to something that will will undoubtedly cheapen it, but in my mind will help me understand it? Sure. So what I keep thinking about is the Force in Star Wars, because I'm a big Star Wars nerd. That's kind of oh, what I, I keep thinking about.
2: Yes. I mean it granted that that's that's a Hollywood thing, but right. there is so much truth to what to what it is described as. I mean the force is essentially exactly what I'm talking about. And the thing that is so sad is that people, you know, they watch the Star Wars thing and they get it. They get the force thing. But they think you have to be a Jedi to be able yeah. to access it don't understand they're carrying it around with them all the time it's there and it can be accessed very very easily
1: shay claims she's able to move objects using the energy around her though nothing as big as an x-wing fighter or even rocks it's a lot more subtle than that which is explained a little later in this episode shay's also an empath someone who has the ability to sense and feel other people's emotions as if they are part of her own experiences She uses these talents to help heal others who suffer from emotional and even physical pain. And, as I mentioned in episode one, she's worked with paranormal investigators like Marty Siebel to read the various positive and negative energies that linger at haunted locations. What Shay really wants to get across to me is that she's not the exception. Everyone has the power to do this.
2: There is no ability that I have that everyone else in existence, whatever has been in existence or ever will be in existence, does not also have. The only difference between me and every other person that's ever walked the planet or ever will is I ha- I have realized my abilities. I have connected to them. I have tapped into them. They are inherent in every single being. They're, it's just that m- most people, um, they're just not connected to them. In about five minutes' time, I can introduce you to it. You can feel it yourself. Um, okay. It's literally... Once you know how to do it, it's the easiest thing in the world. And then once you understand what it feels like, then you can literally turn it on and off like a light switch. It functions in the background and you can pull it forward to utilize it for all kinds of things, for healing, for knowledge, for wisdom, for connectivity, for meditation, for all kinds of stuff.
1: Like many others that Shay's tried to explain this to, I have a hard time understanding exactly what she can do.
2: When I'm trying to explain this to somebody, and I've had to do this a couple of times, you need a point of reference. And almost everybody, whether you move in the New Age circles or not, almost everybody has heard of indigo children.
1: If you're like me, I'd never heard of indigo children before. According to a January 12, 2006 New York Times article, indigo children often have high IQs, are extremely intuitive, and are very self-confident. They also tend to be disruptive in school. This sounds a lot like ADHD, but here's where it differs. When this phenomenon was first discovered in the 1970s, children who had these traits also emitted a deep blue vibrational color around them, an indigo aura, as San Diego based parapsychologist Nancy Ann Tapp described it. But that's not all. Indigo children are also strong willed, creative, possess a deep desire to help the world, are typically psychic, and can tell what's wrong with other people just by touching them. Indigo children are born in or after 1978 and considered kind of the next step of human evolution. So, kind of like the X-Men, right? So, where does the blue aura fit in? In Hinduism, and other dharmic, spiritual traditions from Nepal and India, the chakra is a third eye. I'm sure you've seen illustrations of a person with a third eye on their foreheads, right? This third eye symbolizes a state of enlightenment, or consciousness. Chakras are usually blue or indigo in color. Though Shay was born before 1978, she does consider herself to be, as she describes it, An early adopter of this group. I'll let her explain it.
2: Now, what you need to understand is that the people that studied this, and there were, I mean, psychologists, uh, there were esteemed um, people that studied this phenomenon. What they found was that way before the massive number of children were born this way, the group um, themselves, there were a select number, very few and far between, that were born in the 60s, and what they, they call them the alpha uh, indigos, and basically, we were uh, the bruisers. We were the ones that were thrown into a society that did not understand us and and would shun us and would be afraid of us. And life was going to be really, really hard until we got our feet under us. But what that did was it put us in a position to be able to help this massive wave of children that were going to be born that that um, we could help them realize their own abilities and their own gifts and their own talents. And I ended up, you know, I've got four kids and All of them are indigos to one extent or another. Uh, I was basically one of the first ones. I was dropped into a society with no support um, other than my mom. My mom was cool because she got that I was different.
1: Shay's mom, Jennifer Hensley, understood Shay's abilities because she has them too. And she taught Shay how to harness them. God, this sounds like a comic book, doesn't it?
3: When I was teaching Shay some of this stuff, we took the kids to a... Um, one of those educational museums for kids, Mm -hmm. and I had her hold a necklace in the middle of the table, and I made it go, okay? I don't remember which way I made it go or whatever, and she said, are you doing that? I said, yeah, you want it to go the other way? She said, no way. I said, "Uh uh-huh, so I made it go the other way.
1: Despite her mother's guidance, Shay had a difficult time fitting in at school. She would get teased about being different and didn't have a lot of friends as a child.
3: My
2: childhood was hell. It was awful. And the the first, you know, five or six years of it, I was oblivious to the fact that not everybody else in the universe was exactly like me. I thought everybody else could do the things that I could do. Uh, and, you know, and that, was, that included a very strong sense of knowing. I would know things all the time, all the time, before they happened or – um before somebody said something, I would know what they were going to say. And, and I, could, I could move things without touching them. Now, I could not pick up a chair or a book or anything like that. But if there was something that was suspended, um, like a mobile or a balloon, I could sit and push it around just with the energy that I projected out of my mind. And I thought that was normal. I would do that just for the fun of it when I was bored. Um, And then, then I got into school, and oh, my God, my world came crashing down. The other kids either hated me or were scared of me, one or the other. They knew inherently that something was different. And I just, even at that age, refused to pretend that I was something that I wasn't or refused to hide what I was. And it really scared a lot of the kids. It did. Um, so I was basically friendless. Um, you know, and I, w- I remember, and I loved everything in nature, everything in nature. And I remember being on the bus. I was in the second grade. Hated the bus. I got abused on the bus. I got beat up all the time.
1: Shay's mother, Jennifer, proved to be her saving grace when it came to Shay's unique abilities. As I mentioned earlier, she has the same kinds of talents as her daughter, Shay. Though Jennifer knew she had abilities at a young age, she didn't start to hone them until later in life.
3: Um, When I was a kid, um, this would have been in the 1950s, okay? And um, I remember coming out the back door to shake a rug. And I stopped because I said, well, I've already done it. And then I thought, well, no, the rug's dirty. But I, I, I... Saw myself that I had already done it. You know what I'm saying?
2: hmm
3: So uh, that kind of thing would happen. Um, then you know, you 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 try to get into a career, and you get married and have kids, and that all kind of just kind of faded away for a long time. And um, then I started in in, in uh, Tai Chi and in Qigong. And of course, Qigong is you're just working entirely with energy
4: hmm. and
3: my health my health had gotten really bad, and I found that that I could do so much more with um energy work than I could with doctors.
1: as Jennifer's health improved, she became even more fascinated with natural and alternative forms of medicine, becoming certified as an herbalist and a Tai Chi and qigong instructor
3: so mm-hmm. I started taking care of myself, and that led me into the natural health field uh, where I took courses and, and got certified for different things like herbalist and things like that. And then I started making my own tinctures and stuff. But along the way, I um, just started um, seeing things out of the corner of my eyes, knowing something was going to happen, of course, before it happened. That happens to people all the time. Um, but I think probably, I don't know, 25 years ago, maybe it really, things really kind of started bubbling and I would feel like I was standing on the edge of a cliff, you know, and things were just getting ready to open up and then it would back off a little bit, uh, ran across Joey Korn. Anyway, took a court, just took one of his, had a private session with him.
1: Joey Korn is a professional dowser, spiritual leader, and like Shay and her mom Jennifer, an energy worker. He, along with his wife Jill, run the website dowsers.com, where they offer spiritual space cleaning services, courses, and week-long retreats at their house near Augusta, Georgia. And yes, their own line of dowsers. I'm somewhat familiar with dowsing as a concept, also called divining, water witching, and doodlebugging. Dowsing consists of using either a large wooden forked stick or a couple of metal rods about a foot long each with a short handle. A lot of people use them to try to find groundwater or oil. Supposedly, when you're near whatever you're trying to find, the rods will move in a very specific direction to alert you, all on their own. Miners used to use them to find gold and other buried metals, gemstones, and even gravesites. It turns out you can also use them to find energy, which makes sense, I suppose. Like pretty much everything else related to this podcast, there's a bit of controversy surrounding dowsing, at least from a scientific perspective. There's no evidence it works any more than pure chance. Both Jennifer and Shay consider my mentor in their energy practices and development. In one of my many email correspondences with Shay, she recommended that I speak with Joey so I can really understand the methods of energy work and practices she and her mom have learned from him. So I did. Hi, Joey. This is Charlie Moss. How are you? I'm doing good. I asked Joey about how he uses dowsing to do energy clearing, what that means, and how it helps people, because honestly, I just don't understand how a metal or wooden rod can help people live better lives. It's just hard for me to swallow, you know?
5: Well, dowsing is the ability to use various dowsing tools, such as L rods, a pendulum, uh, pendulums, um, and other dowsing tools in order in order in from my perspective in order to detect subtle energies and and discern them there are it's also you, subtle energies are energies that I, I that i find and work with every day um that that are very real i think they they connect us to each other and everything else in the universe. You might call it a matrix. Um, and but these energies are not accepted by science um, because they can't. They don't have subtle enough instruments to detect these energies. My primary use of it is to douse energies again in homes and to help create ideal or more beneficial energy environments and more healing energy environments for people that enter those, that live in those homes and, are, and enter those homes and other places, like
1: businesses. Joey and his wife, Jill, offer these five-day retreats at their Grovetown, Georgia home, similar to the event that Jennifer mentioned. Joey and Jill's Sugartown Retreat, that's what they're called, which sounds really relaxing, actually. Their house sits on three acres of land that includes a one-acre fish pond. Joey cooks all of the meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And from what I've heard, he's a great cook. Drinking of libations is encouraged, if you want, as well as open conversation. Joey describes these retreats as Divine Wizardry 101. I'm not a huge Harry Potter fan, but it does sound fun.
5: It's similar to feng shui in that it's about creating more beneficial and positive energy flows in the home but I don't arrange furniture I do all of my energy with and I don't arrange houses and I don't change physical things in order to avoid certain energies or create better energy flows I use dowsing to find the energies, and I use my intent by stating what I'm looking for to determine if the energies are less benefit I call them beneficial or detrimental you might call them um, strengthening or weakening some energies need to be balanced and made beneficial I do that all with blessing and I pray only to God I call on God to do the work and whatever forces under God the benevolent forces and then some energies need to be removed and that's the primary work that I do, removing energies that are causing problems in people's homes and in their lives. And it, and it can be very disruptive.
1: Much like I was with Shea, I was very skeptical about any of this dowsing stuff. And when Joey started talking about space clearing. But the more I talked to him, the more I liked what he had to say. On Joey's website, he talks about the connection between dowsing or energy work and the ancient Jewish mystic practice of Kabbalah. You know, it's what Madonna and other high-profile celebrities made famous for a minute back in the early 2000s. Joey happens to be Jewish, which we have in common. So I asked him about it.
5: A lot of people say that I find find these energies that I'm about to share with you because I'm Jewish. That might be why I recognize the pattern. But back in the uh, 96 to 97, I began finding a particular a what was obvious to me a repeating pattern of energies around beds and I explored them a lot I, I use dowsing if you if you can imagine there's a whole world of what of energy subtle energy you might call it spiritual energy or God's life uh, the light of the Creator that's behind the scenes of life um, affecting all of us every day and every
1: every minute of every day whether we know it or not and
5: these energies are
1: very real. Joey asked his friends and family if he could examine the areas around their beds and he began to find a repeating pattern. And then um, and and I
5: found more and more of this repeating pattern until the middle of June of 99 it was just given, shown to me in, in what you might call a vision and a revelation um, that this energy pattern that's around beds is really, it is almost identical to the tree of life pattern that you've often seen in Kabbalah or Kabbalah, which is the Hebrew way of saying it. Um, and saying. Uh, and then I base everything on that. Now, the, what the pattern I'm finding around beds is really not about the beds at all. It's about the people sleeping in those beds.
1: Joey tells me that everyone has energy patterns, and he compares them to fingerprints. Though we all have energy patterns, they differ from person to person, depending on our experiences. This is what he called the human soul level of the tree of life. And this energy is what he finds around people's beds.
5: Each of us has a human energy pattern that goes with us everywhere we go. Everybody's pattern is basically the same, um, just like everybody has fingerprints. But the actual, uh, uh, except everybody's fingerprint isn't the same, and the reason it's around beds is we imprint this energy pattern uh, where we sleep or anywhere we lie down on a physical structure, uh, especially that raised off the floor. And um, so when I'm exploring the tree of life pattern around beds, I'm really exploring. I'm, in, I'm actually dows, indirectly dowsing the people that sleep in those beds or are imprinted around those beds. And those energies that are around beds are directly connected to us. But basically, I, I look at everybody's, when I connect to homes, I check out everybody's human energy patterns. I uh, check which is the tree of life. I find that same repeating pattern around rooms and around homes and in the land itself. And that's what the teachings of Kabbalah set up to say. Here they say the tree of life is within us, it's around us, and it repeats itself endlessly in the energies of creation.
1: So a little context here. Kabbalah, if you're not familiar with it, is in practice in mainstream Judaism. It's considered kind of an occult knowledge or mysticism. It's all about gaining a greater, more intimate connection with God. Dualists believe that within the soul of every individual is a hidden part of God that's waiting to be revealed. Now, here's where the Tree of Life comes in. The Tree of Life is a map of consciousness, a guide to how to become a link between the physical and spiritual worlds. This involves creating a flow of energy, a giving and receiving of energy and blessings to bring unity and completion to our lives. It's all about finding the hidden parts of ourselves that leads to a new level of consciousness. Here's Joey again, talking about what he looks for when he finds these energy patterns we emit around our beds. I look for imbalances in
5: the patterns, especially significant to intense imbalances in the human energy patterns. And I've learned through the years what causes those imbalances, and I remove the causes. And then in the end, I bless the per- the home and the family to support them and make the energies ideal uh, to support them at that time in their life. I, I'm wondering,
1: so what what kind of results do people get? Like,
5: <clears throat>
1: you know, um, what I'm what I'm what I'm hearing is that it kind of brings this balance to people's lives. Is-
5: There's two primary energies that I work with the two main. Things that I clear in people's homes. What I call interference energy. That's the that's the energy that uh, is in ninety nine percent of the homes that I clear. And the other problem is the other energy source or cause of energy problems in homes are are earth balanced spirits. Which is uh, and both of those energies is likely. um, Both of those energies are likely what what Shay experienced around the, prop, around the lake.
1: Now, Joey continues to talk about these two different kinds of energies, but the conversation goes way far off into some pretty crazy-sounding territory that I'm saving for a later episode. As I mentioned before, I'm Jewish. After talking with Shay, Jennifer, and Joey, I started thinking about Kabbalah, energy, and ghosts, and the role mainstream Judaism has in all of this. So I reached out to an old friend.
0: You
4: remember the story of uh, the two guys in the chimney? Where two guys come down a chimney, one comes with a clean face, one comes with a dirty face. Two guys come down a chimney, one has a clean face, one has a dirty face. Which one washes his face? Well, obviously the one with the dirty face, right? He is dirty, he washes his face, the guy with the clean face doesn't. Good. Next question. Two guys come down a chimney, one has a clean face, one has a dirty face. Which one washes his face? Well, obviously, it's the one with the clean face because the clean face looks at the guy with the dirty face and says, oh, my face must be dirty. And the guy with the dirty face looks at the clean face and says, "Ah, my face is clean. So obviously, it's the one with the clean face. Third question. Two guys come down a chimney. One is a clean face, one is a dirty face. Which one washes his face? The answer is, what a stupid question. It can't happen. Which of those answers is Correct the answer is all of them. It's a matter of perspective. You can't say any of them are wrong. You can say what's likely, you can say what's, uh, but the point is, there's more than one right answer.
1: That's Rabbi Richard Sherwin, the rabbi at the synagogue I attended growing up, and he's prefacing our conversation by saying this is his own perspective, and not the end-all be-all Jewish outlook on spirituality and the paranormal. Rabbi Sherwin knew my family intimately. I won't get into it in this podcast, but there was a lot of dysfunction in my family. He taught our high school confirmation classes, and I love learning from him because he always offered a unique perspective, not just on religion, but on life. So I asked him directly, his take on ghosts and spiritual energy from a rabbinical point of view.
4: I'm gonna declare ghost being a cultural word. I'm gonna talk in terms of presence, okay? And if you want to substitute the word ghost, go ahead. When I do a funeral, Um, I feel the presence. I feel the presence. Um, And I speak to that presence when I do a funeral. And I, I tell people that I speak in present tense terms, not what someone did, but what someone does. But I also advise people to speak in present tense because I know they may feel it at any time. The answer is there is a palpable presence in Jewish
1: tradition. How long it walks the face of the earth, don't know. When Rabbi Sherwin says palpable, he doesn't mean something you can literally touch, but you can feel it. It's something that's real, that exists, whether it's a presence or an emotion of some kind, something that affects us in a profound way. I ask him his thoughts on what Joey Korn has told me about dowsing and clearing out negative energy in homes, especially since Joey's instituting Kabbalah into his work. In Jewish tradition, can houses be haunted? Is that a thing?
4: Yes, I know what a dowser is. One does not inflict negative energy on another. Not palpably. It doesn't exist in Jewish tradition. Can you be swayed by someone's behavior in the past? Yes. Can you even feel their presence as you do something? I can't say he's wrong. I can only say he is out of the ken of Jewish, mainstream Jewish tradition. And I'm going to use the word mainstream because I don't want to cast the judgment. Mm -hmm. Mainstream Judaism says, and I'll be blunt now, no to ghosts. That's why I use the term palpable presence as opposed to ghosts. There is no need for ghostbusters if I walk into a house and I know a murder has taken place there, and I feel a heaviness, uh can I say that that is the presence? Sure, but I also know that it there are people who will walk into a house where someone's murdered and say, "You know what? we can do better, and this house will needs a lot of loving So the haunting is a matter of personal perception.
1: So don't get me wrong, I'm nowhere near a practicing member of the Jewish religion. For a time in my twenties, I swore it off altogether. It wasn't until my wife and I had kids that I started to come back to it in kind of a limited capacity. So I'm not taking this as, because Jewish tradition says no to ghosts, that means they don't exist. Like the rabbi said, it's a matter of personal perception. Remember Zach, Shay's son from the beginning of the episode who saw Chris Kennedy's ghost? He was also born with similar abilities as his mother and grandmother.
0: Truth be told, growing up, I always had an ability to be able to, I don't know, uh, have people that have passed away attached to me.
1: Um, I've had several experiences, especially when I was younger. He attributes this, at least in part, to Shay's unique outlook on life. I was born with
0: the ability. I think that I, as a young age, was... Um, allowed to think freely, I was able to be raised with the open possibility of anything was possible. Um, I, uh, When I was growing up, I, uh, my mom introduced me to paganism a lot, and that really stuck with me um, when I was growing up, but I always had experiences that were, that if I had parents that were not like mine, they would have been undermined. Um, viewed as a, a you're making it up, you are, you're young,
1: you don't know what you're talking about. Zach recalls his feelings about seeing what he believes was the ghost of Christopher Kennedy, or as his friends called him, Scott or Scotty.
0: But especially Scott in general was a weird one because there was so much detail within a brief couple of seconds of encountering him that just stuck out. You know, even as a, a young, you know, you can have an imaginary friend, you can, your imagination runs wild, but what, let's just what, say I was eight years old, what eight year old would, would um, in a split second, imagine a, a homeless man standing in his, in his living room, covered in water, making the floor wet, army green um, trench coat with a toboggan and, and, and knife wounds in him. And it, it, it was really odd for me, but it never was um, something that made me feel uncomfortable. He never once, it, the whole encounter did not scare me. It didn't. It wasn't like I felt like he was aggressive. Um, it, I don't know if it was a message. I don't know, because the only words that he spoke to me was, my name's Scott, and he was gone.
1: Ask Zach if he's ever gone to Brayley Pond, and if so, had
0: he ever experienced anything strange there? The one time that I did go with my mom, and uh, I felt just it's some—it's almost like walking <laughs> into a room full of people where you know that something's wrong. Something—it's not—it's not a safe place. It's not something bad has happened here. It's like a sixth sense, and I, that's probably the best way to put what. Um, uh-huh. my mother and my father uh, engraved into my head was that six sense. And being at Braley's Pond, it just made me
1: feel icky. It, it, it just had bad energy to it. Jennifer remembers when Shay went out to Braley Pond. Shay had been on plenty of paranormal excursions. To her, there was nothing to be afraid of. But what happened at Braley Pond was different, and Jennifer knew it.
3: I was really worried about Shay for a while when she was tapping into that kind of energy, because she was actually um, challenging it. Okay, and, and yeah. I was concerned there for a while um, because that kind of, that that can get really hairy real quick. Something was feeding that energy to it.
1: What Happened at Braley Pond is produced by me, Charlie Moss. The exceptional Bill Colrus is our story editor. Our music and sound design are by the legendary Mike Triplecock. Our website, which can be found at www.braleypondpodcast.com, was created by the outstanding Ashton Lance. Our podcast logo was designed by the phenomenal Shelton Brown. Additional artwork is by the incredibly patient Keith Finch. Special thanks to Monty Brock for his scientific insight, and my wife, Vanessa, who is overwhelmingly supportive during this three-year process.